boy, do I have a story for you. I think it's a story for you, at least if you're anything like me. Anything like me, this sort of complex mix of faith and plenty of questions. If you're anything like me, sort of stumbling and tripping all over your own self and sin, and at the same time, so grateful to be covered in the warm waters of grace. Anything like me, feeling like you're sometimes hitting your stride in life and faith, capable and adequate and grateful for opportunities, and then other times so quickly for reasons unrecognizable, so overwhelmed with your own, my own sense of inadequacy and insecurity. Anybody like me? Or maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're not so much like a ping pong match. Maybe you're all the time always aware of the insecurity and the shame, the questions and the doubts. There's always things in us that keep us resistant to the things of faith and the community of the church. And then there's things outside of us within the community of faith and the church that would keep us resistant and reticent and hesitant. I have a friend back on Whidbey Island out in Washington, a Navy sailor inked up all over his arms. His biceps were about the size of my quadriceps, which is saying something is... Shoulders were about as wide as a double door entrance. I always wondered to myself, how does he fit into those bunks on those boats? He, he was really a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, that sort of a friend. At one of our gatherings, for whatever reason, the conversation started revolving around church, which tends to happen when you're talking with a pastor. He sort of chuckled, he smiled, he said, shoot. Actually, I don't think he said shoot. Shoot. If I went to church, the ceiling would cave in. Something about his life and the story of his heart and the way of the church just didn't jive. Do you know my friend? I was in a conversation uh, not all that long ago, actually, uh, with, with a friend. She's, she's tired. She's exhausted. She's sick of it. She's sick of church. It feels phony, it's fake, it's disingenuous. In the last five years, if we can just be honest, have not helped. The politicization and the polarization and the division, she said to me, I've got enough pain in my own life, I don't need to come to church to find more. Something about her story, her life, the story of her heart and the way of the church just don't line up. Or maybe it's the seeming intolerance. This, this gospel, this good news, too often finds people on the outside. Or, or maybe it's the implausibility of it all. The big gospel proclamations don't seem to register in our angry world. Or maybe it's some hidden wound or past shame or whatever it is. You've got resistance. You've got hesitation. You'd rather just avoid it all. Uh, in an email from a friend earlier this week, an e-journal titled Faith and Leadership offered some data. According to the latest Pew Research Center report, the nuns, those who don't affiliate with any religion, the nuns group has grown from 5% of the population in 1975 to almost 30%. 
I'm not great with math, but I think that's basically one in three Americans would rather just avoid it all. They'd rather just stay away. They've got enough stuff. They don't need ours, too. So, boy, do I have a story for you. It's from the Gospel of John. It's chapter 4. Check this out. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, though it was not Jesus himself, but the disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back for Galilee, but went through Samaria. So he came to the Samaritan city of Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the journey, was sitting next to the well. It was about, it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came, and Jesus said to her, Woman, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The woman said to him, Are you a Jew asking a drink of me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews and Samaritans shared nothing in common. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where does this living water come from? Are you greater than our ancestors who gave us this well? And with their sons and flocks drank from it. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me a drink of this water that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said, Go, call your husband and come back. She said to him, I, I, ha, I, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the husband you now have is not your husband. What you say is true. She said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks after such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said, I am he, the one speaking to you. Just then, the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what, what do you want, or why are you speaking to her? She left her bucket and returned to the city and said to everyone, come and see a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And they left their things and they went to him. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus to eat something. Then he said, I have food that you know nothing about. They said to one another, surely no one gave him something to eat. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and complete the work. Look around. The fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the reaper and the sower may rejoice together. For here the saying holds, one reaps and another sows. I've sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into, your, into their labor. Many from the Samaritan city believed in him because of the testimony of the woman. He told me everything that I've ever done. So when they came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he remained there two days. And many Samaritans believed in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your testimony, but we have heard ourselves, and this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. If you want to find it in a Bible near you or the smartphone on you, what a story! What a fascinating story. I think it might be a story for you. If you are a walking duplicity like me, a story for you if you know resistance and hesitation and deep shame. And It's a story that comes to us in two parts. Two parts with a center that holds everything together. Part one, the Samaritan woman. Part two, the disciples. And the center that holds is Jesus. Jesus is always the one who holds everything together. Part one, the Samaritan woman. And I'm just wondering, as you're sitting in your living room or dining room or driving down the road, I'm just wondering, do you know shame? Do you carry resistance? Is it better for you just to avoid it all? The woman shows up to the well at noon. John is clear to point out it was about noon. The heat of the day. Not exactly the time you go to draw water from the well. Maybe earlier in the morning before the sun's heat had hit the day, or maybe later in the evening after the sun had set and the evening cooler air was upon them. She showed up in the heat of the day for the primary purpose of avoiding all of the other people. They knew who she was. They knew what she was about. They knew where she had gone. She didn't have one husband. She had had five husbands. She had been with the guys, and everybody talked about her, and everybody knew, and she carried all the shame. It's just better to avoid. We don't even learn her name, probably because she was keeping the circle of wagons close. She didn't want to share any more about her life than other people had already been talking about her. Anybody know what it's like to feel that way? She shows up at about noon and to avoid everybody, but there's this Jesus Jew sitting there, says to her, give me a drink. And she knows the customs. That's not right. Jews and Samaritans, they don't mix. There was a long history of Jews and Samaritans not getting along. After the Jews had come back from exile back to Israel, the Samaritans had charted out a little plot of land for them, and the Jews didn't like it, so the, and the Samaritans didn't like their pressure, so there was constant many skirmishes, many wars between Jews and Samaritans. It was better for everyone if the Jews and the Samaritans just avoided each other. So the woman says to Jesus, are you a Jew asking a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? 
Not only a Samaritan, but a woman. There they were. The disciples had left. There they were, just Jesus and the woman. There they were alone. Not a safe place for a woman. She's worried that what had happened to her so many times was about to happen to her again. Better just to avoid it all. And Jesus just keeps pressing. Jesus just keeps pursuing. Jesus pursues her beyond the shame. Jesus pursues her beyond the racial divide. Jesus pursues her beyond the social customs. He just keeps pursuing her. But she's not giving in. She's not backing down. She's not going to concede quite yet. She turns to the implausibility of it all. Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? She's not ready to go vulnerable with Jesus. Then actually she starts blaming. We do this when someone touches on our shame, when someone touches on our vulnerability. We start blaming. She says, are you greater than our ancestor? She turns to pride. Are you better than me? Are you better than us? Just get out of here. And then the conversation shifts. Shifts. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. Let's just wait till the end. We'll figure it out in the end. It'll all work out in the end. And Jesus says, I am he. Jesus says, I'm the one. Jesus says, I'm the center. I'm the one who's going to take the shame off your back and give you back courage and confidence. I'm the one who's going to meet you in your exclusionary status and make you a prized priority in the community of life. Jesus is the one who's going to give to her water that will leave her never thirsty and food that will leave her never hungry. Jesus is the one. He's the center that holds it all together. And I'm wondering if you know what it's like to feel at least like the Samaritan woman on the outside, full of shame, all kinds of reasons inside of you that keep you resistant. It's better just to avoid it all. Or maybe reasons on the outside. I'd rather not go there. They're going to talk about me again. Jesus pushes through it all. Jesus actually goes to the place of shame. He says to her, woman, go, call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband, doesn't really want to get into the details. And Jesus says, I know, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. He seems to know everything it is about her. He's willing actually to go to the place of shame. He doesn't avoid the shame. He doesn't go around the shame. He goes to the shame because it's in shame he intends to redeem. It's the shame he intends to make new. It's the shame he intends to offer back as something beautiful for the whole world. I'm he, he says. I'm the one. I'm the center who holds it all together. It's amazing, actually, that Jesus is there at all in Samaria. There were other ways to get back to Galilee. Jesus had taken those paths. He knew how to get back to Galilee. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Think Israel, Palestine, Jews and Samaritans. Jesus chose Samaria. Jesus chose to become a refugee. Jesus chose to risk vulnerability, constant mini skirmishes and mini wars in Samaria. Jesus chose to become a stranger. And he's sitting at the well, and the Samaritan woman shows up. And Jesus chooses to push through the racial divide. Give me a drink. Jesus chooses to break down the social customs. There he is, alone, with a woman. He's willing to risk his own reputation 
and the consequences that might have for the message. He's willing to risk it all for the one because he's the one. He's the one who holds it all together. He's the center. He's the one who's going to tear down shame and give you back something beautiful. He's the one who's going to tear down your insecurities and give you back something hopeful. He's the one who's going to tear down all of the obstacles and invite you into His arms of goodness. He's the one who holds it all together. I like the way Peterson puts it in a book titled Answering God. Nothing the human can imagine. And can you just now for a second imagine all of the obstacles, all of the resistance, all of the hesitation, all of the shame, nothing the human can imagine is exempt from the saving action of God. The saving action of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus who becomes the refugee. Jesus who risks vulnerability. Jesus who becomes the stranger. Jesus who becomes who she is doesn't just meet her where she is in Samaria at a well, becomes who she is so that she can become like he is. He becomes a son of the fall so that we can become sons and daughters of the living God. Christ left the eternal communion with Father and Spirit. He who knew no bounds and had no limits took on the limits and boundaries of humanity. He became like we are so that we could become like he is. He took shame to the cross where it would die. He buried brokenness in the grave, but He rose up in resurrection. I'm the one. I am He. The Savior of the world. People have been trying since time immemorial to satisfy the ache, to cover the shame, to deal with their duplicities. They've been trying, and it's been found wanting. All of the allure of satisfaction and the promise of fulfillment finds disappointment. Jesus says, I'm the one. I am He. Here's the living water. You'll never be thirsty. He holds it all together. The disciples come. Jesus and the Samaritan woman have had this conversation. The disciples show up. They are astonished that Jesus, part two, by the way, disciples, they show up. They're astonished that Jesus would be talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you want to the woman? Or why are you talking to her, to Jesus? And she leaves her bucket. She heads back to the Samaritan city. She gathers the crowd she'd been for so long trying to avoid. She says, come and see the man who's told me everything that I've ever done. So they're like, all right, we'll check it out. So they're on their way, and the disciples start pressing Jesus. You got it. They had given, they had conceded to a cultural script, the disciples. They had given in to, to the world's narrative of Samaritan and Jew, of male and female. They had been co-opted by another story. They start pressing Jesus to eat. You got to eat something. Jesus starts talking about food. First, he was talking about water, sacramental. Then he starts talking about food, table, visible signs of an invisible grace, using these present realities to point to deeper truths. He starts talking about food. I have food you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and complete the work. Look around you, he says. The fields are ripe for harvesting. Even now, the reaper is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. The saying holds, one reaps and another sows. I've sent you 
I've sent you. That's what Jesus says. I've sent you. I've sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. God is at work. The Spirit moves. Jesus is, and he's sending us not to do the work of, for God, not to accomplish the work for God, but to participate in what God is already doing. He's already engaged the Samaritan woman. The Samarit- people from the Samaritan city are already on their way out. Look around. You enter into labor, which has already been done for you. Look around. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. Rather than playing by the cultural scripts of race and social custom, rather than following the scripts of shame and insecurity, Jesus pursues us beyond all of those and sends us to do the same. Jesus is amazing. Somehow he finds a way to be with the one who is disenfranchised and with those who hold social policy. He finds a way to be with the one who's been excluded and the one who sets priorities. He finds a way to be with the one full of insecurity and the powerful. He finds a way to be with the one who has a past they don't want to talk about and the one who holds the keys to the future. He finds a way. Rather than going the way of cultural scripts, we go the way of Jesus who finds a way to pursue beyond all of the obstacles to meet us as we are. I have sent you, he says. All right, I'll calm down. Uh, my sermon writing practices have changed over the last couple of years. I used to be sort of a joke around pillar. Don't talk to Pastor John on Thursdays. You'll find yourself in the sermon and it wasn't really funny because it was actually true. If you inter- interrupted me on a Thursday morning while I was writing a sermon, there was a very good chance your name, story, quote, whatever it was, would show up in the sermon. But the practices have changed over the last two years with COVID. We, we record our services on Thursday. This is Thursday for me, Sunday or later for you. We record on Thursday so we can edit on Friday and Saturday and then offer something by Sunday. Just before all of this happened, literally four days before COVID started wreaking its havoc, at least in this country, we were at a congregational meeting, and I said, you know, I just, in my stunning visionary leadership, you know, I just don't see Pillar ever streaming worship. And four days later, that's all we had. And to this day, the online worshiping community, the sort of gathering of worshipers online, remains our largest sort of gathering between our other two sites and our three services. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but will worship in spirit and in truth. So the patterns, the sermon writing patterns have changed. Now I write sermons on Wednesday. So this past Wednesday, I'm banging on this sermon, and I'm feeling all kinds of energy that you can probably feel from me now too. And then I come to the end of the sermon, and I have no idea how to end this sermon, which is a really bad proposition for you. You like it when sermons finally come to an end. So in my sermon quandary, I get a text from a dear friend, a picture of a page in a book, believe it or not, a book by Eugene Peterson. I received it as a word from the Lord for you. You can tell me what you think, then we'll come to the table. Saint, the word, means being set apart for God's side. 
The word means we're chosen out of the stream of circumstantiality for something important that God is doing. What is God doing? He's doing what he's always done. He is saving. He's rescuing. He's blessing. He's providing. He's judging. He's healing. He's enlightening. There's a spiritual war in progress in our world, an all-out moral battle. There's evil and cruelty, unhappiness and illness. There's superstition and ignorance, brutality and pain. God is in a continuous and an energetic battle against all of it. God is for life and against death. God is for love and against hate. God is for hope and against despair. God is for heaven and against hell. There's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square foot of space is contested, and every one of us is enlisted on his side in the contest. Every one of us is enlisted. Every, I have sent you. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. God is. The Spirit moves. Jesus says, I am and you're enlisted. Amen? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is always, always seems to take that which we know to point and direct our hearts and minds to that which we long for. He was at a table with his friends one night and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he poured out the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. Jesus says, I'm he. I'm the one. I'm the center that holds. If you believe Jesus is Lord and you acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome to partake in this sort of virtual way, if you're not at that place in life or faith, if you're aware of your resistances and hesitations, if you're like my friends who would rather just avoid it all, this isn't meant to be coercive or manipulative, I would love to hear from you. I would truly love to walk with you to hear more of your story. I can share some of mine. You can find me at john at pillarchurch.com, J-O-N at pillarchurch.com. But for now, for those who choose, all things are ready.